Yesterday, we were talking about Purdue Pharma. The big story was the company that made billions selling the prescription painkiller OxyContin filed for bankruptcy in New York days after reaching a tentative settlement with many of the states and local governments that were suing it over the fact that they've that drug has taken a toll on the people that uh, they represent. And the filing was anticipated before and after the tentative deal could be worth up to $12 billion over time. Uh, but there are a lot of states that sign on that have refused to sign on, and they're saying it's just not good enough. It, it just... It lets Purdue off too easy. Jonathan Novak is an attorney and former U.S. Department of Justice litigator, and he also is suing Purdue on behalf of clients, including the city of Albuquerque, New Mexico, and the state of Utah, which has signed on to the tentative settlement. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thanks for being here. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So how do you continue on with the uh, your lawsuit when the state of Utah has signed on to the tentative settlement? How does that work? Well, what we've already seen is a lot of, in the federal case, for example, they've already severed Purdue. Um, we're not going to be able to pursue active litigation against pursue individually uh, as a defendant, but there's a whole lot more still to be done, both in terms of figuring out the settlement and also pursuing all the other defendants. They filed for bankruptcy. I, I need to know, and I think for maybe the average person listening, we don't understand what exactly that does for them. But I have to think when you're talking about uh, a company whose senior vice president, who was in charge of sales for the company, uh, told the, the uh, sales force in the late 90s at a launch party for the drug OxyContin, that he said that the launch of OxyContin tablets will be followed by a blizzard of prescriptions that will bury the competition. The prescription blizzard will be so deep, dense, and white. It's an interesting uh, analogy to pick because blizzards are deadly and so many people are lost in them. But I find it interesting that a company uh, who, you know, would describe their drug as something that would become a blizzard in the States would file for bankruptcy if there wasn't something in it for them? What's in it for them? I think that what we're seeing here is that the families associated with Purdue want to maintain the other aspects of giving to the public and funding museums and maintain something in that regard. Um, I think there's also a lot of liability that they realize they're individually facing and just theoretically, you know, people across the country, attorneys general and U.S. attorneys are talking about the possibility of criminal prosecution. So I think entering a settlement here gets them away from any future liability. Yeah, under the deal, um, the fate of the company is uncertain. Under this this tentative deal, it would continue to operate with profits being used to pay for the settlement. Another option could be a judge could order it sold. Yes. And I think, you know, what, 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 and to your earlier question, there's, there's a lot of unknowns here and mm-hmm. them filing for bankruptcy, you know, although that was expected, there's still a lot of aspects of this that, you know, you've, you've correctly called it a tentative deal and nothing is set in stone. Nothing is written out yet and no one has signed anything. Entering into bankruptcy is going to give the company the opportunity to basically list their proceeds, list their assets, and then let 
someone administer how those assets are spread out. Whether the company is still standing at the end of the day, I think, is going to have a lot to do with whether or not settlement can occur. I heard that the bankruptcy uh, puts lawsuits on hold that are already, um, like your lawsuit would be put on hold because of the bankruptcy for a while, and that the Sackler family are not declaring personal bankruptcy, but Purdue Pharma has actually asked a judge to extend the bankruptcy shield of the assets to the Sackler family. How is that even legal? I mean, that just seems odd. There, there are going to be a lot of moves like that. And we've seen in this litigation a lot of moves like that. Is it odd? I would say so. I would say it doesn't reflect what my interpretation of the law would be. But there are aspects of this where I think if the Sacklers, as is, as is being reported, if the Sacklers are actually talking about kicking in personal funds, then those protections may be necessary uh, in terms of the stays so that the Sacklers will have ability to access that money. Um, and in the end, it's going to be a function of what's going to be better for the communities that we represent. What's going to be better for getting them money to start fixing this problem? Um, and unfortunately, sometimes that's going to leave a bad taste in our mouth with taking action on these cases. Now, the other aspect of mm-hmm. this is in, in, case, in, in those cases where the Sacklers have been uh, identified as defendants, it's done in concert with Purdue itself. And there's an argument that by staying the case against Purdue, you can't get to all the facts that are necessary in order to keep moving forward on other defendants who are closely related. So there is merit to it. But again, there is something about it that leaves a bad taste. I mean, the whole story leaves a bad taste in your mouth from them being, you know, putting a lot of pressure on uh, doctors and hospitals to make sure that they prescribe this drug that they said was not addictive, although apparently they had some feelings that possibly it was addictive. And they actually changed, they reconceptualized the American system when it came to pain. Put people on these drugs, they'll live better lives. So they created, helped create this problem. And just to give an idea of, you know, their OxyContin, it's not the only opioid on the market, but it was introduced in 1996 and it was very um, actively marketed aggressively to hospitals and to, to doc- doctors. And since it's an introduction in 1996, overdoses have surged. Just to put it in perspective, in 2017 and 2018, opioids were involved in more than 47,000 deaths. Are they not, you know, in part responsible? Because people have gone from, you know, because they can't get the prescriptions anymore, they have moved on to heroin and fentanyl. Are the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma not partially responsible for, uh, you know, creating the dependency in the first place with the prescription drugs? I'm... I can't say that they are. I can tell you that that's what we're trying to prove through these cases. That's what we've been trying to prove for a long time. The marketing of not just OxyContin, but as you said, there are many opioids that were marketed very heavily in the late 90s and the early 2000s. And it's every defendant that manufactured one of these pills tells us, well, it wasn't our marketing. It was bad doctors. It was bad Mm. pharmacists. And it was junkies. It was people abusing the pills. Everyone but when you look at the demos, you know that that's not true. 
And that's exactly the point. Everyone here needs to be held responsible for their role in this. They acted in ways which they knew or should have known were not okay. This all is a result. The, the, we're living in a world post the normalization of opioids. Mm-hmm. Overdose deaths are through the roof. Addiction rates are through the roof. And as you said, people are moving on from their legally obtained opioids to illicitly obtain heroin and fentanyl. And that's what's killing people now. Right. And they're moving on because doctors have realized that they were, you know, misled and that these are highly addictive. So they're saying, no, you can't, you know, we got to get you off these. You can't have that prescription anymore. And so these people are now dependent and they're turning towards anything. Why are the Sacklers not being charged criminally? I can't speak to that. I can tell you from my experience working at the Department of Justice that we are in unheard of territory. Uh, we, as a country, don't typically go after CEOs and heads of companies individually. There are, there's a lot of rumbling all over the country for that kind of action. But those sorts of decisions, again, it's unprecedented and it's not taken lightly. I'm no longer in the halls of justice, but I can tell you these conversations are almost assuredly happening to weigh whether or not there's a case and to weigh what the impact of that would be on the American public. You know, we've seen in the past when, if you look back at the savings and loan scandals of the 80s, or if you look back at the housing market crisis uh, in the early 2000s, people weren't held accountable. And we need to get over that fear of holding people in power accountable. Um, And hopefully, you know, maybe that's not what happens here, but hopefully that conversation's happening and we can start doing that to stop the next one of these problems from... Well, listen, if it doesn't happen here, Jonathan, uh, it's probably, I wouldn't hold my breath on that because (laughs) holy moly, like this is just... It's ripe for, I think, a criminal charge, but that's just my own, um, you know, opinion that's, you know, I'm not a lawyer. But I really appreciate your time, Jonathan. I wish I could talk to you longer, but I've got a news uh, break to get to in a second. And uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. You have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too. That's Jonathan Novak. And he has one of these um, cases. He's representing people in a case against Purdue Pharma.